Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra. As always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, how's it going? <laughs> Are you ready for Didn't this? Even attempt. No, an not adjective no. for the morning. I hope you're ready for this because I've got like not a cup of coffee. I've got a flask of coffee. I've got a sure. sandwich. I've got a Kit Kat. I've got a bucket beside me. There's no toilet breaks today, man. We're in. I'm this. surprised it's not stronger than coffee. I know it's 10 a.m., but uh, oh. it feels like that sort of day. It does. Um, I mean, let's. I suppose let's get right to it. The, the 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 small talk section of the podcast can be held back for another day. I think there's enough to to get into in this game, isn't there? I think so. I think so. So where where do we start exactly? I mean, I guess at the beginning, which is a good place as any. But in terms of yeah. how how we set up the team and the team selection, was there anything um, weighing on your mind? When you saw the team selection and the team formation, yeah, yeah, I, I was hoping to see a four-two-three-one or something like a four-three-three mm. with Reese Nelson on the left-hand side. I think I said before the game on Twitter, I, I felt like Emery would go, might go back to the diamond. Yeah, um, I thought if he did he would include Joe Willock in it. And I know that he didn't have the best substitute appearance, Joe Willock, but I do think that his sort of verticality and his athleticism is pretty important if you're going to play that sort of system. And mm. I was kind of in two minds when I saw the lineup. I can't lie, there was part of me that thought, well, he's picked Meza Ozil, he's picked Danny Ceballos. You know, there is something adventurous in that, especially yeah. with Aubameyang and Pepe ahead of them. But I also looked at that midfield four and thought it feels very one-paced and it feels not particularly strong defensively. And I think that kind of bore out, didn't it, over the 90 yeah. minutes, just a bit. I was a little bit concerned about the diamond because just because of how poorly it worked at, at Liverpool, I know Liverpool are a different thing altogether, a different kind of challenge than Watford. But, mm. you know, it, it just, yeah, I had some concerns about it from that point of view. Um and I have to say, I didn't think we played particularly well in that first half, even though we went in we went in 2-0 up. Um, I think Watford had had three or four attempts at goal before we even had one. Um, so, yeah, know, I mean, won the first half. I've tried to look back at it because mm. we lost control of it so dramatically in the second 
enough. I'm not sure we ever really had it under control. I think there was probably like a 20 minute spell towards the end of the first half where we were comfortable. We actually finished unusually for us the first half with 57% possession, which, you know, we don't dominate the ball at all uh, away from home. And I thought, oh, bringing us in, bringing Sabios in. I felt like Sabios had a pretty good first half after sort of struggling physically initially early on. I thought that he became more influential, but they did have eight shots to our three in the first half. And a lot of that came sort of first 20 minutes where they they kind of came out the blocks and we pulled, to be honest. So, I mean, would you say that the the first Arsenal goal came a bit against the run of play? Yeah, I think it did. I think it did. I mean, and it, it was sort of classic in that respect in that it was Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang making something of nothing really I mean it was a, a decent enough counter-attack I thought it was a foul actually I have to say yeah me too <laughs> um, I thought it was really clearly a foul uh, but anyway once that had gone you know Kolasinac broke away found Aubameyang and I do think that turn and finish is probably even better than it looks I mean he takes it I think on his left foot spins hits it on the right almost on a sixpence it's a, a brilliant brilliant take from Aubameyang and it seemed to settle us a bit because from that point in the first half, we had we exerted a little bit more control. Um, yeah, but did you? I mean, presumably you agree that it was against the run of play. Yeah, I think it was a little bit. Uh, but I, you know, the finish. Uh, I, I suspect this podcast is going to be fairly short on positives, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it would be fair to to give some credit to Pierre Emerick Aubameyang because I actually genuinely shudder to think where we would be. Without him, I mean that that finish, like you say, he made it look easy. It's a bit like when he scored earlier in the season that he made look very easy, but it's not necessarily as easy to to score them as you think. And he's a player right at the top of his game, full of confidence. You know, he knows when he gets the ball in positions like that 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 he can score. So uh, between that and the second goal, obviously, which came from a nice passage of play from an Arsenal point of view, probably. The best piece of play, uh, certainly possession football that we played in the game, uh, and he tapped it in at the back post. But again, we have to give him credit for for his movement there. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought the goal took a little bit out of a little bit of the wind out of Watford sails, if you like. And there were moments where we could have perhaps stretched them even further. Uh, there were some chances. I think Ozil had a chance to play in Pepe. There were a number, yeah. actually, of of almost really good passes from an Arsenal point of view where, actually, the Watford defence read them very well and cut them out at the last minute. So I think we have to give the Watford yeah. defence a little bit of credit there. But, you know, you could see how we were beginning to cause them a few more problems. Um, yeah, I, can I just jump in on that? Yeah. Sorry, I mean, sort of reliving it now... I. I think what is so interesting about this game and probably so bad about it uh, and so depressing about it is that I do think you are touching on something which I agree with, which is that there were there were some positive signs in that in that first half. And, you know, the second goal, for example, that that was a 20 pass move, Mm. which, you know, I think Sky said it was the, you know, the most passes in the build up to a goal there's been in the Premier League this season. Um, It was pretty elegantly worked. Ozil's pass was excellent. Maitland-Niles' run and cross was very good. And we did look quite dangerous. I mean, I remember scrolling through my Twitter timeline, people saying, oh, Birmingham's definitely going to get a hat-trick today. You know, he might get four, five or six. <laughs> there, there were occasions on which it really looked like we were going to sort of 
take them apart because they are not good defensively. They've not been good defensively all season. Mm. We had Ceballos, Ozil, Pepe, Aubameyang out there. Um, you know, once we got that foothold in the game, you know, goals change games. It is a cliche, but we didn't look as disastrous as we can do. Mm. You know, I, I do think that's um, something that I had almost forgotten, really, uh, in in the wake of that second half. That yeah. there was a kind of twenty minute spell of not not excellence, but sort of competence, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely spot on. But I also think that kind of tells its own story in a way that we're looking back on that of competence as as um, something to take a positive from and it's a fairly it's a fairly low bar but like you say it was a really good second goal Aubameyang's movement Ozil's pass through to Maitland-Niles was excellent and at that point you thought okay well this is all right you know we haven't played well but you're mm. you're going through it in your mind aren't you you're going okay well it's it's the first game back after the interlull and sometimes yeah. it can take 45 minutes to grow into a game it's their new manager so they're out to impress they're making life a, a little bit more difficult for us but at 2-0 we've got a we've got a decent position to build something on in the second half and build a performance on in the second half but there were there were warning signs even in that first half. I think not long after we scored the second goal, we almost gave Watford an equaliser when we played it short from the back and Doozy got caught on the ball mm-hmm. on the edge of our box and Leno had to make a save and I think they blasted one wide. So, you know, the the flaws or the things which ultimately started to trip us up and which did trip us up and, and left us, you know, face planting uh, straight into the curb were also there in the first half too. Yes, that's true. And I think Leno made eight saves on the day, you know, without him. Uh, you know, we talk about Aubameyang's efficiency at one end of the pitch. I actually think sometimes Leno's own efficiency is somewhat underrated. Uh, he makes a lot of saves for us and, you know, I, this is a, a big statement, but sort of kept us in this game mm. um, and allowed us to go home with a point. I think you're right. I mean, my interpretation at half time was okay, they've got a new manager. They came out of the blocks flying. They gave it 20 minutes of, of real huff and puff. We then sort of, because we played a slightly more technical midfield, you know, we had better footballers than them out there essentially and exerted a little bit of control in the second half of the second half, scored two decent goals um second half of the first half sorry second half of the first yeah. half apologies yeah uh, and, and I was sort of at half time thinking well we're probably fortunate to be two goals ahead but with that cushion and with that sort of psychological buffer we sh- really should be in a position to mm. see this out and obviously if the Gunduzi thing was a heart in mouth moment but it's one of those where I think we've said in the past of him, well, you know, he's a young player. That might happen once in a game. Um, as it was, it happened three or four times. Yeah, it's it's a... Like, I don't know quite how to apportion blame, and I'm not necessarily yeah. blame is the right word here. Like, he's being asked to do that, right? It's clear. It's, it's instruction. He's being asked to pick the ball up on the edge of the box. Sometimes he's a bit slow uh, at turning. Sometimes he can get caught. So do we then criticise the player for not learning or do we criticise the instruction or criticise the tactics 
in continuing to give it to a player who has been shown to you know to be a bit vulnerable in that regard. But I think what what struck me uh, afterwards was this talk immediately um, in the second half, you know, how Watford came out and they just started to put us under pressure. And I think there's something to that. But I think more than that, we put ourselves under pressure. Mm. Two minutes in to the second half, Genduzzi plays a ball blind from the from the right back position, more or less, straight into his own box, into the path of a of a Watford player. Yeah, and it it's it was like the first of a series of calamitous mistakes, which which really I think inhibited us, which set us uh, on edge. I think we were nervous. Maitland Niles was guilty of one as well. Not long after that, and then um, a couple of minutes later, we have the we have the first what for goal, yeah. which is. I, I I don't know how to explain it. Do we even need to explain it or or well, analyse it? I mean, you, you touched on it with the Gunduzi incident, and I think the same thing applies mm. with this one. I think there is a discussion to be had about a portion of blame because I think it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, the the coach has to take some responsibility because it's his directive. You know, there's no way the players are taking it upon themselves to take a short goal kick. You know, every time that's clearly something that comes from the top. And then on the other side of that coin, I don't think anything excuses playing the ball eight yards to an opposition player. You know, it's yeah. it's it's one of those where it's like I don't quite know how to break it up because um, it, it, it's it's a faulty strategy. But you, it's difficult to know how it's being applied. You know, yeah, is it? Are they told? Under no circumstances, if you boot this ball, or if you put it into touch, or if you put it at you know forty yards up the pitch, you will be dropped. That is not acceptable in my team. Or are they out there making bad decisions on the field? I yeah. suppose. I, I think I think it comes down to the coach. I think that's the instruction. I think they're playing to his instructions. Louise was very clear earlier in the season, wasn't he? Was it after the the game against? Burnley, was it Burnley? And he said, yeah. "This is this is what the the game plan is. It's to play out from the back." I like the tweet from uh, Michael Kashani, who's at Michael Kashani, who says, "Do they realise the new rule is that you're allowed to play the goal kicks inside the box, not that you have to?" You know, mm-hmm. and and there was a there was an element of that, and I, I'm I'm sort of I'm a little bit torn because I can see. That you know the idea that Socrates, like no manager or no coach, is gonna you know um, expect a senior international player to just play a ball the way Socrates did yesterday. But for me, it's sort of a consequence of the overall strategy or the instruction or, or what the players are being told to do. It's either you know I'm, I'm just not sure it's clear enough in their minds what exactly it is they're supposed to be doing in those situations. Okay, it's play it out from the back. Take a short goal kick. Put it to the right back. Put it to the left back. Play it to the guy on the edge of the box. He can turn, and then we can bypass, you know, the high press. That's clear what the the idea is when it works in an ideal situation. But I think a lot of the individual mistakes we make are because we, we become nervous. Even Watford said it afterwards. They were nervous. We could tell they were a bit nervous even in the first half with these short goal kicks. So if you put a bit more pressure on the opposition when you know they're nervous, and the opposition 
uh, you know, insist or insist or are, are, are being told, this is how to do it. Do not do it any differently. This is what we train for all week. I mean, did you see Xhaka talking afterwards on, on Sky Sports? And he said, yeah, we do it in training. It works fine in training. And you're thinking, well, mm-hmm. of course it does. Because you, I doubt that they're training with the intensity of a match. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're doing drills, Okay, this is how we do it. But like, are they really? Are the guys really trying to win the ball off their mates in training? You yeah, know, is it and easy? That's what you can't emulate. Exactly. Really. I mean, is it easy to make it work in training? But in in practice, you know, in the in the heat of a Premier League match, it's very different. Yeah, I mean, there are teams doing it. Let's be clear, they're, yeah. they're good teams, but they are capable of doing it. I mean, I don't sort of philosophically disagree with playing out from the back. It's Nor sort of one do of those I. Things, you know, I'm like, in an ideal world, I think I would like to see us doing it. Um, whether or not we have the players or, crucially, the coaching staff to implement it properly. Because it's not as simple as just saying, play out from the back. It's all about something like that. Distances and positions. Sure. And, you know, it, it, it has to be drilled so within an inch of its life. It's not a, que- a case of, well, we've got David Luiz, he's Brazilian, as long as we give it to him, it'll be all right. Yeah. You know, it's about structure and shape. But do you um, also not think it's a little bit about um, variety yeah, in I that mean, if the opposition know this is what you're going to do every single time, every, every single time, then it becomes easier for them to uh, to to close you down and to put pressure on you. Whereas if you know, every second one or every third one or, you know, every now and again you clip a ball into midfield or you clip a ball out to a guy who's situated, you know, between the lines, either on the left or on the right, then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're bypassing that press and you're keeping the ball and the opposition are now turned backwards and they're having to run uh, run back. You know, I think that the, yeah. the problem for me is that it was just so so easy to telegraph. This is what this is what they're going to do. This is how we will counter it. And if they make a mistake, we will punish them. We made a mistake, and they punished us. Yeah, and I, I would just add, I've watched Liverpool a couple of times this season, and they, you know, they do play out from the back as a rule, but they do go long quite frequently as well. Mm. They go very long and very direct, and you can see teams struggle to cope with it because it's not necessarily what they've prepared for, not what they're set up for and anticipating. Mm. Um, and there's a lot that we could learn from that. I mean, the times we did go longer yesterday, Martin Keown, I don't know if you saw, picked up on this on Match of the Day too, because we were so set up for the short ball, we left huge gaps between our midfield, our defence, who were like, you know, six yards out from their own goal. Yeah. Um, and it enabled Watford to pick up the second ball every time. So our out ball uh, from the goalkeeper was... Yeah, pretty disastrous yeah. on the day. And it made you sort of yearn for the days of pinging it to, to Bakary Sanya on the halfway line, didn't or it? Or Olivier Giroud or something. Yeah, I mean, when you decide yeah. to go long and you've got no... Like, if, you, if you've if you been practising all week to play it short and playing it short is putting the shits up the team and putting you under pressure, so you've got to go long. I mean, do, do we practise that? Mm. You know, I think, yeah, we, we, we uh, just... So I completely agree with you that the application of that strategy is... Yeah. all over the place. It's not the Completely actual yeah, the it's place. not the idea of playing out from the back in itself that is wrong. It's how you put how you how you do it. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose you know, it's, there's a, there's a. I mean, I know short corners are very unpopular, but there is a degree of comparison to be made there. Where if mm. you play a short corner every time, it completely loses its effectiveness. It's the variety of the, that set piece that yeah. that's valuable. I, I, so I, I buy all that hundred percent. What I am slightly struggling with from this game is just sort of almost psychologically and maybe it is because the players were nervous because of this kind of strategy and there was a kind of psychological fragility about us but the errors that we were committing in from from the from that whistle from the moment the second half started were uh, really astonishing and up there with anything from sort of the proper clown card days of Arsenal that we've seen I think in the last five years mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's another that's another um, issue, I think, that uh, we'll, we'll touch on in a few minutes' time, the, yeah. the stats that are doing the rounds of, uh, you know, how shots many and, how many shots yeah, yeah, we're yeah. conceding and everything else. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a worrying thing. But let's just take it from what for getting one back mm. and Arsenal becoming even more fragile and Granit Xhaka said scared. Um yeah, that was afterwards. An unfortunate choice of words. Really. I, I, yeah. I look. I'm not Shaka's biggest fan or anything like that, and I think he can be a little bit, uh, a little bit self-serving at times. Um, but when he talked about us being scared, I, I sort of took it as a, a tacit criticism of the way we played this game, not just from the players on the field, but but from the manager and the way that he managed the game, the substitutions he made, um, you know, how can you be scared at, at 2-0 up against a team that's bottom of the table? You know, he, he there was a quote from Emery where I think he says, we spoke at halftime where we thought two goals wouldn't be enough. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah. That's like, what? what? Yeah. I mean, just what's in the players' minds when you go in 2-0 up at halftime and the manager is telling you that's not enough. That's not enough. You know, you, there's... I, I, I'm i sure you saw the piece by Alan Smith mm. in the Standard where he said, you know, he had heard whispers about how some of the players weren't, um, weren't necessarily understanding exactly what it was the manager wanted from, uh, from them tactically and organisationally and, and everything else. And I think when you, when you see a former player who's pretty well connected say something like, I've heard whispers that maybe they're not quite, you know, on the same wavelength. You kind of have to read between the lines there. You know, I think he's being quite diplomatic. He's not saying exactly what it is that he's heard. I think probably what he's heard is worse than just a couple of whispers about them not understanding what he wants. And I think we saw that yesterday in terms of that second half performance that looked to me like a team that really didn't know what it was doing. The reason the team were scared in that second half was because they didn't know what to do. They really didn't know what to do to counter what it was that Watford were doing to us, which was not, let's make it clear, particularly complicated. It wasn't like we were being run off the park by a team as good as Manchester City or Liverpool, whose movement and individual quality causes you problems which make your head spin. This is Watford. And with all due respect to Watford, you know, it should not have been as terrifying for us to play them as it clearly was. 
Yeah, and, and this is a problem for Unai Emery because it's difficult to draw a line between his intention going into the game and his intention with the tactical changes he makes during a game and the consequence of them. So to use the example of the Liverpool match, which I know you and I disagreed on significantly, but Mm. there was at least a sort of a plausible logic in my eyes of, well, you're accepting that you're going to concede possession to a certain extent and you're looking to hit on the break. And and that's sort of a concession you're making because Liverpool are a great team. Yeah. But if you pick a midfield that contains Danny Ceballos and, crucially, Meza Ozil, who essentially you don't really pick in away games, don't really pick at all if you can possibly avoid it. Um, the fact that you pick those two tells me you're not going to Watford and looking to sit back and control the game, uh, and let them control the game. You're looking to go there and dominate the ball. Otherwise, you wouldn't pick a midfield with Granit Xhaka, Ganduzi, Ceballos, and Özil. That's a clear, surely statement of intention that you're going to go. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to hold the ball. We're going to dominate possession because we've picked technical ball players instead of your Torreiras, your Willocks, your guys who are a bit more physical. And the problem is that that just didn't manifest at all, apart from a brief mm. spell in the first half we were on the back foot uh, for for the majority of this game, the significant majority of this game. And that means that yesterday, whatever plan that was put in place did not make it to the field. And that is speaks to a breakdown in communication because there's no way, it just doesn't tally up, does it? The selection, the substitutions mm. and what you see on the pitch... It doesn't make sense. So, so something's very wrong. I think. There. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. I think you're right, and the fact that whatever instruction or whatever idea he had about the way we were going to play just didn't happen. And yeah. when, yeah, if you're on if you're on the pitch and you're confused about you know what it is your manager wants from you or how it is he wants you to play, you know, I think ultimately you go into your shell, and I think that became that became the case. In the second half, and it's I think it's a common theme actually for me with with Emery and and watching his teams and you know I, I find it hard to remember the last time I thought Arsenal actively and deliberately controlled a game of football. You know what I mean? Where there was a definite game plan, you could see what it was, and we executed that game plan to the you know to the nth degree, where you know putting ourselves in a position where we're 2-0 up, control the game. Control the game. Be calm, be sensible. You know, you can let Watford have some of the ball if you want, but it was panic stations from the very first moment in the second half. And that that comes from a team and that comes from a group of players who are unsure of what it is they're supposed to be doing and how it is they're supposed to be doing it. You know, it, it's it's just a feature of... Emery's football, if you want to call it Emery's football or Emery's Arsenal, is that there is a lack of fundamental lack of control, whether it's at the back, whether it's in midfield. And the only time we ever seem to get it is when our two forwards, uh, Lacazette and Aubameyang, really take control of a game. And you think back to the, the Valencia performance in in Spain at the end of last season, where the two of them were absolutely outstanding together, but it was a it was a performance I think based primarily on the effectiveness of their partnership and the fact that they just took the game to Valencia and and blew them off the park. But in yeah. general, you don't see Arsenal 
in control or look like a team that feels confident, that looks assured, that looks like he can just keep possession for the sake of keeping possession. You know, we're, we're always sort of desperate to try and make something happen because whatever we have, we don't feel like it's enough because we know we can't defend, that we might self-destruct, that these flaws that are, are inherent within this team, this group of players, and let's you know, be honest, it's a it's a quite a different group of players from mm-hmm. the one that, that started last season, but the, the flaws remain, the errors remain, the issues remain, the the wobbliness remains, and it's hard to look beyond the coach. I mean I think yes, I think that's I think that's fair. You know, this is the we we got a new coach in and I think every Arsenal fan would have said the immediate priority for the coach is to improve this team defensively. Mm. And I think arguably we've regressed defensively. Yeah. And it's because actually, in my opinion, of our failure to control games. And I, I, I actually think we obsess about the back four, but I think so much of this is to do with the construction of the midfield. Um I mean, honestly, I, I really, really, I think there are individual problems within the back four, you know. Yeah. Maybe Louis, like, he's got a rick in him. Maybe Ainsley Maitland-Niles is not the greatest defender. But essentially, you know, the back four are put under an enormous amount of pressure because I just don't think, I think we're a bad off-the-ball team. Mm. Really bad. I don't think we work hard enough particularly yeah uh i don't think we have a good enough shape but i just think what every game we play the thing that emery's trying to get right seems to me is the composition of his midfield and apart from a spell where he had aaron ramsey available to him and he sort of could use him to kind of plug a couple of gaps like a bit of a cheat code player it it just hasn't really worked (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we could obsess over combinations in midfield and people will talk about, you know, how Jack is a problem and yeah. maybe he is, or, you know, Ginduzi yesterday wasn't good. Uh, we, we'll talk about the substitution now in a minute of, of Ceballos. Um, you know, he included Ozil, who's a, you know, who showed his, his quality in the final third. But I, I think it's hard to for me um, to look beyond basic things like organization, you know, and just... Again, an understanding of where you're supposed to be in situations when we don't have the ball. I mean, as early as the first half, Dale Lefeo was picking up loads and loads of space mm. over on over on the Watford left-hand side. You know, again, the warning signs were there pretty early on and we didn't do very much to, to deal with that problem throughout the game. So in-game management becomes an issue as well. Now, I... I Again, this all feeds into why we make so many individual errors, why we're a team that uh, has allowed 96 shots in five Premier League games, which is astonishing, astonishing for a team like Arsenal to have allowed the opposition that many shots. And you can talk about the quality of shots all you want. That's not really the, the point here. It's the fact that we have a team which does not protect its back four. And I, I, I'm with you. The back four has got some issues and we can all see those. Um, and I'm not excusing the mistakes by Louise or Socrates yesterday. Um, I just think we don't, we don't protect our back four at all. And we haven't done at all since Emery arrived. And, mm. 
you know, into his second season, we should be better organized than that. There should be more discipline in midfield. Um, the team should understand how and why they need to, you know, for example, stop crosses into the box. We're too slow to close things down. We're positionally all over the place. It doesn't take much to bypass our midfield entirely. We play in straight lines. You know, it's just so easy to get at our back four. And what the other stat that stood out to me uh, doing the rounds from from yesterday was that, you know, we've conceded 10 penalties in the Premier League since Unai Emery took over. I think a lot of that is down to the fact that we put our back four under so much pressure that we, okay, some of it, some of it is brainless, but ultimately we're looking at players uh, feeling desperate, making desperate decisions, making wrong decisions and rash decisions in our own box because it's far too easy for the opposition to get into our box and to get into our box in a way which makes it more likely that you're going to concede a penalty. You know, they're getting into into the box at speed. So any little tackle becomes, um, you know, becomes a penalty. I think uh, there's a desperation to the way we try and defend. I'm not going to say the way we defend, but the way we try and defend that leads us to conceding as many penalties as we do. Yeah, and I think there's a stat about David Luiz conceding, I think, three penalties in his entire time at Chelsea. It's two already at Arsenal. I mean, you know, he's got an error in him, but he's never looked quite as uh, as vulnerable as this. And mm. I think that probably does speak to, to what's around him. Uh, and those numbers for shots against, I think that it's the highest in Europe's top five leagues, isn't it? I don't think another team has faced that many shots. Um, it sort of becomes impossible to... You know, ignore a number like that, doesn't it? I mean, what yeah. can, you know, it speaks for itself at that point. So, what about the substitutions then? Danny Ceballos came off in the 60th minute, and there was a weird. Um, I'm sure somebody who was at the game could could tell me this better, but it sounded on TV like there was a weird kind of reaction to that because the Arsenal fans have been singing Ceballos's name throughout the first half. I thought he looked bright. You know, we needed a player who could use the ball, who could um, give us a little bit of calmness in possession, who could perhaps uh, help us break some of the pressure that we were under. And Ceballos looked to me like, you know, the, the, the kind of player in our midfield who could do that. But nobody wanted to be overly negative because you're bringing on Joe Willock, a very promising young player who everybody likes. Mm-hmm. I found that a very odd substitution, I have to say taking Ceballos off and you know he said it was because it was because it was a hot day and we needed fresh legs um yeah I mean I I have to say I, I I've got to be honest and say that at the time I I didn't think that was particularly weird like I you know Ceballos is new to England new to Arsenal and I really thought we were missing at that point in the match someone with a bit of physicality and someone who could actually carry the ball up the pitch. I, yeah. and I thought, okay. and, and, and so the introduction of Willock and actually, you know, Willock had a bit of a disaster in terms of releasing the ball in the final third, but mm. he did kind of bring those elements to our game. I, I'm a big proponent of Joe Willock. I think he's a, I think he, he brings an ingredient to this midfield that it really lacks. So, I can see that Sabaris was definitely one of our better players. I would probably have withdrawn Meza Erzil yes. instead of Danny Sabaris. I, I think that would have made a bit more sense, wouldn't it? Because you could play Willock in that in that central role and put Sabaris um, in the kind of Ozil role, but drop him in a bit mm. and 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 make that. I think that sort would of have a, been better. Yeah, definitely. And um, 
And I also think, you know, Ozil came off, Reese Nelson came on, and I didn't think he had a particularly good time. I mean, I also wondered to what extent are we slightly confronting the reality of the squad that we've got here? You know, we we, we want young players and we want new faces, but the, the guys we had to turn to were teenagers and when you look at the mistakes that sort of Ganduzi and Maitland-Niles made in this game as well yeah there is inexperience in this side no I think that's fair but I also think you have to as a manager judge when is the time to use your young players mm-hmm. like was that really the time to throw on Reese Nelson you know 70 minutes in 71 minutes in we are absolutely un- uh, completely under the cosh yeah. What what is he expecting Reese Nelson to do in those circumstances? I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry for for Willock. Torreira obviously is a, is a bit more experienced. I, I thought maybe we might get a bit more from from Torreira, but you know he couldn't really do a lot uh, to help Maitland Niles down that uh, right hand side to cut out yeah. the threat of De Lafeo. So I sort of felt a little bit for our our two younger players in in uh, in those circumstances. You know they're barely into double figures, if that. Uh, in terms of the Premier League. And when you throw them on and you expect them to sort of all of a sudden, you know, stem the tide, there's a gigantic, you know, Watford truck heading towards you and you've got to stop it with with these two young players who who probably haven't um, experienced that kind of a situation in a Premier League game before. So, you know, I think you have to look a little bit at the the decision-making of the manager. I know he didn't have a great deal uh, on the bench in terms of experience, and you're right, you know, this is a raw squad. Yeah, none. He's got Torreira, Chambers, but then it's Nelson, Martinez, Willock, Martinelli, Saka. I Mm. mean, ooh, that's a, you know... That's a Capital One Cup squad. Do you know what I mean? That's like, uh, they're kids. They're really kids, some of those Yeah. Guys. Yeah. Um... It's a tricky one because, you know, like the, the Ozil thing, you know, do you leave Ozil on because you think he might give you more control and possession or do you infer from the last three years of watching Arsenal that his off-the-ball work away from home isn't his strong suit and think... I give a kid a run. You know, you and I both said, "I would like to see Nelson start the game," but yeah, but not come on with twenty minutes to go. That would be yeah. Too I mean, much. it's it's to do with circumstance, isn't it? Like if we're three 0 up, you can say put Saka on and give him give him like of twenty course, minutes yeah, because yeah. that's a perfect time to do it. But is it the perfect time to put on Reese Nelson when when we're we're in those kind of circumstances? So look, we were we were being pummeled basically by yeah. Watford. Uh, De La Feo was cracking shots uh, all over the place. A couple of them went just wide. Um, the defence was under more and more pressure. When we did get the ball, we very rarely got it into the opposition final third. I think there was one moment, wasn't there, when when Willock went through and Aubameyang was offside and then came back on yeah. came back onside and was really unhappy with Willock when he couldn't get the pass away. But I think it was just the fact that he had gone offside um, you know he didn't he didn't necessarily react quickly enough in, in that regard, but it felt like an equaliser was going to come one way or the other, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I mean even when it did, you know, it, it, I really thought there was a, every chance that Watford would go on to win it, and they very, very, very nearly did. Um, but yeah, it was only the, the, the momentum of the game was only in one direction, and uh, I mean Louis. Yes, he was exposed, but I mean, I have to say the way he hangs a leg out is pretty uh, disappointing to me. Mm. Uh, I would expect better. Yeah, of, I, w- uh, I would too. Someone of that I would too, experience. but you know, it's, you know, and I'm not making excuses for him and I'm not making excuses for Socrates. Um, I just think when you invite that much pressure, you know, it goes back to maybe what we were talking about 
um, with with the Liverpool game, where inevitably, if you allow the opposition chance after chance after chance to come at you, you're either going to get exposed or you're going to make a mistake. And I think it was slightly um, part of that. I mean, it was you know a daft challenge for a player of his experience, but but there you go. So a penalty. Uh, 2-2 with, what, about 10 minutes to go? Yeah. Um, And they could have won it. They could have won it. They probably should have won that game. Oh, yeah. Uh, Was it Decore who had a brilliant chance after an amazing run through the midfield, played the 1-2, hit it straight at Leno. I mean, he couldn't Mm. believe it himself. I couldn't believe it. Um, I I think that's a good save. I actually think that's a good save. Yeah. I've not really seen it back enough to say. The... the, um, I, I don't think the finish was maybe as um, clinical or uh, he should have put a bit more on it. I think he was just basically trying to, to make sure he got it on target. But I think Leno anticipated where he was going to go with the finish and made a, a pretty good save. So we got to thank him for that. But, you know, it's a big, big chance for Watford to take three points. And, and again, afterwards, Jack is talking about, yeah, we kind of feel, you know, happy with a point. Not that we should be happy with a point. I don't think that's what he was saying. But in the circumstances, considering the chance that Watford had to win the game, for us to come away with a point, um, yeah, you can understand why they were not necessarily happy with it, but you can understand why they they felt a little bit grateful. I guess so. I mean, yeah, from our point of view, we we gifted them a way back into a game that should have been over, you know, at 2-0. That's a really comfortable lead to have away from home in the Premier League. Uh, you should be able to exert some control on a match at that point. Uh, and that's just when we appeared to relinquish it. So, yeah, I mean, what, what I, mm. the numbers at the end of the game are pretty staggering, I think, when you break them down. Uh, yeah. The most shots Watford have ever had, I think, against a Premier League opponent. <laughs> um, 31 shots on goal to seven. And, and, and I accept that part of that is you know, game state and these other factors. But when you look at it as a pattern across our first five Premier League games... Uh, 96. Know, it, yeah. And I think in most, if not all games, being outshot, uh, that is sort of irrefutably problematic. Wasn't wasn't that an issue like last season? I know that people were talking about how we were, you know, outperforming our XG and, and all that kind of stuff. But one of the other yeah. issues was that the opposition were having more shots on goal than we were. It's really difficult to win games when that happens and when that happens on a consistent basis and when it becomes, you know, when it goes into the second season and that becomes kind of an underlying metric of your team or your performance as a manager, it raises some big questions. I mean, yesterday, I have to say, that second half, you know, I, I've expressed some doubts uh, mm. on this podcast and on the blog and what have you over over Unai Emery. Um, but yesterday really, really did set some alarm bells ringing for me because just the sheer ineptitude of it five games into a new season when we're looking for tangible improvement, we're looking to see the team um, play some football that we can identify with. We're looking for the team to tighten up defensively. We're looking for for more character. We're looking for um, what's what am I going to say? Did I say defensively already? I'm just all over the yeah, place with yeah. this. Yeah, you know. So you're looking for you're looking for things which you can say, okay, maybe it's not perfect right now, 
But I can see where we're going with this. I can see that there's a little bit of an improvement here. But I'm not, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see mm. it in any aspect of our football, in any aspect of the way we play. And, you know, now when you think about how the opposition must view Arsenal, it's disappointing. It's really disheartening to think that, you know, this soon into a new season after after a summer which we all found very encouraging because of what we did and how we did it and the way we spent money and, and everything else, that we, we're already looking and being considered like a, a soft touch, a team that's easy to play against, a team that's easy to get at. And, uh, you know, for me, if if Raul and Edu and the people making football decisions at this football club aren't worried and aren't like having a little bit of a behind-the-scenes chat after what they saw yesterday, then I'd be really, really worried. Um, I suspect they probably are, though. Yeah, I, I think I don't think that's something fans need to worry about, especially. Um, I think that they will be pretty engaged and they will be watching very carefully, particularly this season. And, you know, it's not like at Arsenal in the past where I... I think so much of my frustration and sort of uh, anger almost at the at the management situation was that I felt that it just wasn't open to change. And I don't think that's the case now. Like, in, in a way, that enables me to feel slightly more relaxed about it because I believe they just will pull the trigger if they feel it's appropriate. On yeah. Um, but I, I think I've definitely been someone who's sort of sought to give Emery the benefit of the doubt wherever possible, but the numbers are sort of almost impossible to contest. And I think, you know, whilst those are not especially new, I think the manner of the second half capitulation, uh, I did find really, really disappointing. Yeah. I, mean, I, I I think that's our worst half under Unai Emery, I think. Yeah. Um, and that's not a good sign for sort of trajectory reasons. No, I mean, we've had some, we've had some stinking performances. And I think mm. the summer and the fact that we went out and we addressed issues and there was, you know, good communication from the club, I think in some ways it... it I'm trying to choose my words really carefully here. Well, well, I'm, I, I think it, it just sort of I won't say it made people forget about how bad the end of last season was. I don't think it made people forget, but I think in doing what we did, it spoke to a kind of seriousness about okay, addressing some of those problems that we had within the team, right? Mm. But it feels just kind of more the same. Yeah, and when you look at the, the last few Premier League fixtures last season and these fixtures in context, you know, when you look at that as a kind of run, which is essentially what Watford did before sacking Javi Gracias, that they looked at his end to the season and his start to the new season, um, it doesn't read prettily for Unai Emery. And I think in fairness to the club and in fairness to Josh Kroenke, you know, they made sure to take the Europa League final on themselves. They said, oh, we realised at half-time in that game, you know, we we had a lot of work to do. They did not place any burden or any emphasis on Unai Emery. Mm. And they spent a summer 
I think, pretty much supporting Unai Emery. I mean, there is a discussion to be had about the allocation of resource, if maybe more could have been allocated defensively. Um, but they spent, I think we all agree, pretty well. They bought pretty well. They dealt well on Emery's behalf and gave him a squad that I think we all felt was in a better position. Yeah than where we were at the end of last season. Do you uh, think, sorry do, sorry to interrupt, do you think that this group of players is capable of producing better football than we're seeing? Mm, yes, I do. I do. I do And too. I base that on groups I've seen at Arsenal before that I consider less talented, I suppose, mm. um, performing beyond these standards. Uh I think they're capable of getting better results. I think they're definitely capable of playing more attractive football. I think we probably all agree on that. Um, but in terms of results, I definitely think so. And so, you know, that does come to the coach. And, and it's not a huge surprise at all that the coach's future is a big topic for discussion this morning. If I think it's just a question of sort of where you sit on a... On a on a scale, really, people. There are some people like I was fed up with this last season. I'm ready for it to end now. I think there are some people like if we reboot at the start of this season, it is still only five games, and I, and I I have some sympathy with that perspective as well because there are enough little tiny factors of mitigation in what happened yesterday, like the international break, like that youthful bench, mm. like it being a new squad that I think you can justify. Uh, giving it a bit more time. Yeah, I see where you're coming from, but also we were playing a team who were bottom of the league, who'd only scored two goals all season. You know, it, it's that classic Arsenal thing of of playing uh, an enfeebled opposition and then mm-hmm. just a direct, uh, injecting adrenaline straight into their hearts. Here you go. There you go. You're back. Well done. We've given you the, <laughs> the boost that you need. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just feels to me when we have the Emery discussion and when we, we talk about the work that he's doing, that there's always a mitigating factor in a way. And it's not that there haven't been, and I'm not saying that, but, you know, the the first game of the season is the first game of the season. The second game to Burnley, and we only win by a single goal. And, you know, okay, it's our first home game. Liverpool away. You know, how can you expect to beat Liverpool away? It, it just always feels like there's there's some reason why we can't say that the work that he's done over the last, you know, towards the end of last season, the start of this season has been, well, subpar at the end of last season. And so far this season, absolutely average until yesterday, at which point it became very, very subpar, you know? And I think yesterday... Uh, again, not necessarily saying that social media is the the barometer for all fan opinion, but it strikes me that you know, reading my timeline, and I, you know, I'm sure your timeline was was full of people as well who have basically said he's not the right guy for us. And there seems to be kind of a growing consensus that the work he's doing isn't going to be much different in three months' time, or six months' time, or nine months' time. Mm. Well, that's because it hasn't been drastically different yeah. uh, over the space of whatever it is, 14 months. I, uh, I, I completely hear that. I'm just trying to sort of put across which I, what I think will be the view of the Arsenal executive team, yeah. which is that 
for all the frustration at some of those excuses, they are they do have a, a measure of validity. You know, game for game, I would say yesterday is the only bad result we've had this season. Uh, you know, it's the only only game you could look at and be like, that's a bad result. Um, and out of five, they'll be like, well, we, we can't turn around tomorrow and sack that manager for that. And and I, you know, I think that's sort of fair enough. I think they have to give it a bit more time. I don't actually massively believe it's going to change. I mean, that's my opinion. I've, I think you know Emery will turn out to be kind of exactly what we always thought he'd be, which is a guy who sort of oversees a, a, an awkward transition period, isn't massively popular, uh, goes and it's the next guy who really gets the run of the job. I, I mean, I, you know... I've kind of always had that suspicion. Mm. Yeah. Um, then it I begs the question, though, that. doesn't it? It begs the question that if you don't think it's going to be any better or, or significantly better, how long do you give it before what happens really has a, an impact on your season in that you're, you know, you're chasing you're chasing and you're chasing for a top yeah. four position, you lose too many points or you put yourself in a position where it's really difficult? Well, again, I mean, we're one point behind Chelsea and one point behind Man United and one point behind Spurs. We're, so Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, I'm wrong. We're on the same points. So for, for, the, for the executive team, this is not that point. Like, they, they, when, when our top four place, they consider it to be in danger, hmm. I think they will do something. But uh, I, I just think that it's not that time yet. And, and people are free to make their minds up. But I, I just think it's sort of you're, you're, you're sort of wishing yourself into a, a circumstance where oh well, Emery needs to be gone today, and I'm, I just that isn't going to happen. I, that isn't going to happen. Yeah, I don't think it will either. But um, I think this is a this is a big month for him. It's a big month. Um, do do you do you worry a little that the the negativity? generated by yesterday might impact the way that we approach the Europa League game on Thursday. Um, like, would you, for example, would you pick Aubameyang on Thursday? No, I wouldn't pick Aubameyang. Neither um, would I. I wouldn't pick Aubameyang. I'm not especially worried about that. Maybe because I sort of don't I'm know how much it's in his thoughts. I don't know. Mm. I mean, if he's going to pay What's our fixture at the weekend? Villa. At home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wouldn't pick Aubameyang. Definitely not. Um, do I think there's a chance that Emery does? Yeah, I think there is a chance. Mm. Um, because he'll look at it and go, what am I, you know, what are my options? And he, he, But he, I, I sort of think he'll do the right thing and not in this instance. Mm. Um, what do you, do you think he'll pick him? Uh, I hope not. I hope not. Because he's so important to us that if we pick him in a Europa League game and he picks up a knock yeah. for three or four weeks or whatever, I think we're in very, very big trouble. So if the Premier League is the priority, then there's no way he can pick him. Like, I wouldn't even bring him on the bench, to be perfectly mm. honest. Um and I don't think what happens against Frankfurt is what will um, what will define our response to the Watford game. I think it's what we do against Villa on Sunday that will be considered the real response. 
You know? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll probably get beat in Frankfurt. But, you know, I think that's because we'll go with like a, an understrength team and it's going to be their biggest game at the group stage. And, you know, I can see us struggling there. But I sort of think, well, so be it. I've kind of made my peace with that. You know, we'll, we'll probably get out of the group anyway. Mm. And the Premier League is more important. And, you know, we... Of course, you know, we look at Villa home game at the weekend and we sort of think, well, that should be a gimme. But if you play like you did against Watford, nothing is a gimme. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I, there were real signs for concern yesterday. I think it was a, a, a definite low point for Unai Emery. And yeah. I, think that he, I think he lost a lot of fans yesterday. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's I fair. I think a lot, a big swathe of the support was like, ah, oh, no. I'm I'm not into this anymore, and uh, I <laughs> that's can difficult it. to come back from, isn't it? It is. We've talked about it with players in the past. It's really difficult to come back from. It becomes this kind of self fulfilling thing where if something goes right, it's down to the players. If it goes wrong, it's down to the coach. Uh, it becomes about perception. I think the difference is that in the past we had a management structure where there wasn't really accountability, and I think there will be this time. I. I you know, we're not going to get locked into a situation where we've all got a manager we're unhappy with. That just isn't going to happen under this structure. Mm. We will either be successful or he'll go. Um, so I don't... I, I sort of almost feel like the the freaking out, I'm going to say, almost feels a bit unnecessary to me because I trust that the right thing will happen. Right. So Maybe it's not, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when... Assuming, you know, of course, that, that you know, he doesn't mastermind the turnaround. Unless we don't dramatically improve. Yeah, yeah, unless it doesn't hugely turn around and we stroll into the top four. Um, you know, that that would change things. But right now, you look at it and you ask me, is Unai Emery going to be here next season? No. No, mm. definitely not. It's a question of of timing. And, you know, I, I, I think that is the likeliest thing. But I... I the, the mad thing about this season, the only thing that makes me think I'm not 100% sure about that is the vulnerability of the other top four teams and what that might do to distort our own performance. So you, you mean like what's going on at United and Chelsea? Yeah. You know, well, I mean, I suppose um, with, with Chelsea, um, you know, they've got a new manager in and um, yeah, look it's all about perception and it's all about, you know, how people view the work that you're doing. And if Lampard, for example, has some teething problems along the way, but Chelsea fans can see what it is that he's trying to do, then I think that buys him, you know, time and it buys him goodwill. The problem I have, and I can't speak on anybody else's behalf, is that I don't know what Unai Emery is trying to do. Mm. I don't know. And that well, he, he couldn't tell you if he wanted to. I'm afraid it's mm. sort of part of the problem. Yeah, I mean the Lampard thing is interesting because you know <laughs> you're only as good as your last game, and their last game, Tammy Abraham scored a hat trick and they won convincingly. They've got the same points at us. They drew at home to Leicester City. They drew at home to Sheffield United. They've had easier games and got worse results. Now I understand that he's got a philosophy and an idea and he's bringing people on board with that. Mm. And I think that that is what is most absent at Arsenal. I think you're right to point that out because when I look at other clubs where I feel like the, the situation seems a little bit more positive, and a little bit happier, it isn't always, it isn't always determined by 
result is determined by uh, a sort of collective sense of pulling in the right direction uh, and a sort of connectedness between the club and the fans. And actually, the coach is someone who's pretty responsible for that. They are the the front man of the club, the voice of the club. And I just feel like Unai Emery, you know, is never going to have that affinity with the Arsenal supporters. Mm. Um, and so he's sort of a guy doing a job, but like it's very difficult for me to see a scenario where they love him, you know? Yeah, it's it's hard to connect with Unai Emery, you know, and mm. it's not just his communication, which can be hard to decipher at times what it is that he's trying to say. Um, I've got a theory on that, though. Go on. This is a sort of new theory. I've seen him be interviewed a few times this season, and his English is better. His English is better, and his vocabulary is better. And it makes me wonder, can he be understood that well in Spanish? Um... I, you know, I don't know. Maybe somebody who um, who listens to him or has listened to him a lot in Spanish can can tell us that. Um, uh, like, is it about language? Because I, I, I genuinely, I, I don't I, like when I saw him be interviewed this weekend before the Watford game on Sky. I was struck by how much his vocabulary has broadened, sure, and yet how little clarity there still is in what he says. Yes. I mean, I, I, it's maybe not about how many words or how much English he knows, but, but what kind of English he knows, because it seems to be... Um, and, and, you know, I'm not being critical of this at all, because it's very difficult to to learn a, a second language or a third language as, yeah. as an adult. It, it is hard, so I'm not being critical about this at all, but it feels to me like there's a lot of a lot of buzzwords or a lot of phrases that are sort of put together which don't necessarily make any sense in English that maybe he's translating directly from Spanish to English and it makes more sense if you say what he says in, in Spanish. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I, I did read a good interview with him in El Mundo, uh, which was conducted in Spanish. And he is, um, at least in, in written form, much easier to understand and there is greater clarity you know when he when he speaks or when he expresses himself in his native tongue mm. as you would expect but i do wonder if the communication issue is part of why players aren't necessarily sure what it is that he wants them to do or what he wants them uh to be on the pitch you know mm. i do wonder yeah i mean yeah that that's sort of what i'm getting at i mean maybe you know, some people are better communicators than other others, and language is part of that. But it's not the whole thing, actually. Mm. Um, and I, when I look at the team looking a bit disjointed, I mean, I, I, do you think that... I saw some people suggesting they felt the team sort of threw in the towel yesterday. They kind of were, you know, not playing for the manager. Is that something you thought? Because no, it's not actually what, what I see. No, I... I didn't. What I saw was sort of, a, as I said previously, a kind of desperation 
You know, I didn't necessarily see lack of effort or I didn't see players who who weren't trying. I just saw players who didn't know what way they could stem the Watford tide, how they were going to get back into the game, how they were going to control the game in any way. There was no point in that second half where we had um, a, a single player or a number of players who were able to say, OK, look, just let's fucking, let's get organized. Let's make sure we don't give them uh, enough space. It was kind of helter-skelter. It was a little bit schoolboy at times, wasn't it? In that pe- We were all over the place. Just, it's, it's, it's lack of organization. And from there, you're chasing your tail. Um, so I think it comes down to just knowing what you're supposed to be doing on the pitch. Being unable to control games, being unable to maintain possession. There's a lack of calm. There's a lack of assurance. And I think we're, we're panicked too easily. And at the heart of that, at the heart of that is the, is the coaching and the preparation that's being done on the training ground that isn't giving the players what they need to, to be really effective in, in the Premier League. Mm. It's like, it's, I don't think they're not, not playing for the coach. I just think they don't know what he wants. A hundred percent. I'm sure they know, you know, vaguely. But they don't look like a well-drilled team, do they? They don't look like a, you know, when Emery came, it was all about, you know, we're going to, you know, press. We're going to play with intensity. We go back to being protagonists. I know that's, you know, his, we couldn't be as big as uh, uh, Bayern Munich. That's his Ivan Gazidis moment right there. The one that, you know, people keep coming back to. But that's what he said, and that's what people expected. You know, he said, this is what we're going to do. We've never really done it. And more, the more it goes on, the less we look likely to do it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, ultimately, you know, you, you wait to see signs of improvement. And uh, there is, that is the question. At what point have you not seen enough? Do you know what I mean? That, yeah. you, that you have seen enough. Um, and... Yeah, I, I do think yesterday will be a bit of a milestone day in the in what ultimately happens with the Arsenal and Unai Emery. I think for some people it's the day they lost all faith. For some people it's the day that their faith, you know, took a massive dent or yeah. chip out of it. And yeah. I think uh, you're right. The next month, because, I mean, it's mad, isn't it? But we're five games into the season and it feels like the manager's in a position where he can't afford to, to lose games. Yeah. I think, I mean, again, it comes back to, it's not just what's happening this season, it's what happened at the end of last season as well. Mm. You know, if you could see tangible improvement, then I think you, you buy yourself time. Mm. So look, we've we've done an, an hour and a bit for the first half, so... Um, wow, I did not notice that. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. We should take a little uh, break for the bucket here. Nobody needs to hear the tinkling. So um, let's do that and we'll come back with questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. And on the Arsblog Discord server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon, which you can become by going to patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Do you want to go first or will I go first? I like the way that nearly became a jingle then, which you can become by, you know. Maybe oh, we can work we could, on that. Yeah, do a singing version. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> we'll do that for next week. We'll take uh, our minds off the football. Yes, we might need it. Uh, let's have a question. Go on. I tell you what, um, to talk about something different from Watford for, for once in our lives, Jared Ellis on Twitter says, what side should we put out for the Europa League? What side should we put out for the Europa League? Okay. Um, Martinez in goal. Yeah. Um, I think we've got an issue with fullbacks, don't we? We definitely have an issue with fullbacks. So I think it's going to be Kolasinac on the on the left because we don't have anyone else unless Kieran Tierney is fit enough, which I'm not sure he quite is just yet. I think we could do something like, God, I wonder will he play a three at the back? Potentially he could play, you know, if he brings Rob Holding back. I think he'll play, Rob Holding. He's ready from what I hear. Yeah, he's done 90 minutes for the under-23s. Mm-hmm. He's he's stepped it up. I think this could be the game for Holding's comeback. And I think Chambers is in there as well. And let's not forget, um, how could we? That we also... Mustafi! save the day. Yeah, so we could have Mustafi or Chambers play right back. Yeah, I think Mustafi at right back is a very... Very real possibility, and that would keep you a back four. Yeah, so um, I think he, we could play. I think we're. I think he'll play Torreira. Yep. I think he'll play Willock. Yep. I suspect that he will play Nelson. I would agree with that. Maybe as one of the front three. I think up front we don't have anyone else to play striker. Apart from Aubameyang or Tyrese John Jules, scored twice. Scored for the twice for the, the under twenty three. So you know we could give John Jules uh, a chance there. We could play Martinelli on the left hand side, and it would not surprise me if he played Pepe. Well, I think he might play Pepe through the middle. Actually, mm. Mm. I, I just wonder. I just think. Will he look up for a bit of seniority? I've actually written something to this effect at the moment, but will he opt for a bit of seniority there? And and also, 
We've got a question about Pepe coming up later on, but is it an yeah. opportunity maybe to give him some game time and maybe a, a goal? Because uh, he could probably use it. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I think we'll do. But you know, you've got the likes of uh, Saka, uh, Balagoon as well. Yeah. Um, you know, chomping at the bit to get on. I would go Smith Rowe to be mentioned. Oh Smith yeah, Rowe. Smith Rowe actually a potential starter. Um, I think he could start, yeah. Yeah. So, look, I, I, I want us, um, you know, despite the paucity of our Premier League performances thus far, I don't think it would be the right thing for us to do to try and, you know, restore confidence or whatever by playing a strong team against Frankfurt and then having to play the same strong team against um, against Villa, more or less, you know. Rest those players up um, and, and give these young slash fringe players a chance to come in and uh, and show what they can do. So that's what I would do. I would go as as young as possible with a smattering of experience, which we would have, you know, with the likes of Kolasinac, Mustafi, Torreira, um, you know, holding chambers, that kind of stuff. Martinez is relatively uh, experienced too. Mm. I tell you what, I know it's uh, technically your turn, but seeing as I touched on it then... Can I do another question? Yes. This is from The Chief, who's at Macho Grande one on Twitter. And The Chief says, £72 million can buy you a lot of things, but it won't buy you time. How long until we have the Nicolas Pepe conversation? All left foot, lacking guile in the final third. Defenders are starting to show him out wide. Are you worried? No. Not yet. Okay. I mean, I think it's... I think it's too early to to really be worried about Pepe. I think there are too many other too many other things going on. Like if if Pepe was 5 games into his Arsenal career and remember it's only 5 games he's only started twice. Um if he was brought into a team which was organized, cohesive, knew what it wanted to do from an attacking point of view, was creative, dominated the opposition, spent a load of time in the opposition half, you know, um, pressurizing the opposition, and he wasn't producing after five games, maybe, maybe you could start to get a tiny little bit worried. But it's five games, that's all. He's in a team which is basically a mess. Um... We don't really know what we're doing from an attacking point of view. We're asking him to do whatever it is that he does on his own, basically. Mm. Like, take the ball, be surrounded by three men, and do something with it. That's what he's being asked to do at this moment in time. I don't think there's a real clear strategy in, in terms of how we're, how we're going to get the best out of him. There were a couple of moments yesterday where where you saw it maybe when the game was a little bit stretched in the first half, I think. There was one moment Xhaka tried a long ball, he just booted it straight at the keeper, and there was one where yeah. Ozil almost, almost played him through. Him, wasn't it, or something? Yeah. yeah, well, actually, there was one that was cut out, and there was one that was, um, that was just slightly behind him. Um, so, no, I, I don't think it's time to have the conversation just yet. I understand people might be a little bit concerned, but I think there are there are other issues that are affecting the way that Pepe is performing beyond Pepe himself. 
Yeah, and I think that his involvement in games is still good. I mean, the stat flashed up during the game yesterday. He leads Arsenal in complete dribbles, passes into the penalty box, chances created. You know, he's not showing nothing. I think he could do with a goal. I really do think he could do with a goal. I think it would lend a bit of conviction to him in the final third. It would boost his confidence. And maybe, you know, it's natural that that price tag is <laughs> somewhere in the back of his mind. Um, but I don't, I'm not I'm not despairing at all. I think mm. he still looks like a really exciting player. I just think he needs a bit of consistency around him and a bit more, you know, of a, a solid approach from the team to shine. And I also think it depends what your expectations of him were. Like, were you expecting him to come in and be messy or were you thinking, well, this is a good player and that's what good players cost these days. So... Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not especially worried either at this point. No, I'm not yet. Let's have the conversation in a couple of months' time. And if, you know, the team... Yeah. Well, look, if the team is still struggling for, for cohesion and organisation, then, you know, we could be in more or less the same position. But, uh, yeah, look, let, let's talk about Pepe a little bit down the line. I think he is kind of the least or one of the least of our problems uh, at this moment. Here's one from Jack Sherlock, who's at Jack underscore Sherlock on Twitter. He says, why doesn't Emery get credit for individual brilliance from Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, but gets crucified when a defender makes an individual error. I know he chooses the system, but the blame seems disproportionate when the players are the ones making the mistake. I don't think that's really a fair comparison. I don't think that Emery can take credit for individual brilliance from Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Like, Emery can't take credit for the way... Aubameyang spun on the ball there and battered that into the near post. Um, that's down to Aubameyang. Mm. I, I do think that there are probably things that if if fan sentiment was a little bit more in Unai Emery's favour, we might take slightly differently. Like if this was Unai Emery's first five games, not his first five games of his second season, we might have looked at the goals we scored yesterday and said, well, one was created by one fullback and the other was created by the other. And there you go. That's sort of in, it, part of his attacking strategy in action. He wants to get those fullbacks in behind, and he did rather effectively for both goals. But um, I think the Aubameyang comparison is is not really valid, and I think Aubameyang is sort of covering a, a multitude of sins at the moment, and, and Emery's a very lucky guy that he's got Aubameyang to call on. Mm, I think so. Him and Lacazette. You know, yeah. like I said, I think is a is a big miss. He's a big miss. And Leno, I, I do keep coming back to it, but I, and Burn Leno as well. I mean, I really, really think if you look if you look at our fixtures over the past twelve months or so, some of the saves he's made, um, none were spectacular yesterday. But he, well, I know you felt that was a, a good save in the last minute from Decore, but uh, he 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 does make a big contribution. Actually, I think he's been a really really. Good signing. Yeah, and again, uh, the fact that our goalkeeper is as um, as is important or as well worked uh, as Leno is is a is a huge concern. Uh, just on this, I mean, I, I so I, I think because of the tide, it felt slightly turned against Emery yesterday. I think that um, it's sort of de rigueur to say that the individual mistakes are sort of almost exclusively his fault. That's not how I personally see it. I, I think what Socrates did was completely stupid, like absolutely mad. Yeah, he did. I, I, um, yeah, go on. And, and and I slightly respect actually. I know that it's a bit of a sort of 
a meme and a trope almost for Arsenal players to come out after the game and hold their hands up. But, you know, he did seemingly do that on social media. And I sort of think, well, at least there is some acknowledgement of also individual culpability because we've got some really experienced players in Louise, Socrates, Shaka, who are doing mad stuff, mad stuff. And I do have still some sympathy with Emery there because it's not good enough. Sure. I absolutely accept that. I do. I think, you know, individual mistakes from players who should know better. We have to focus first and foremost on on those players. But I think when it becomes part of a sort of a grand pattern, you know, over mm. the course of, of, of Emery's reign, like, you know, the end of the Wenger era, when players made individual mistakes, people said, well, it's because they, they just, you know, he's lost the dressing room or there's no accountability, that kind of thing. And, you know, I do wonder, you know, this week Emery was asked about Xhaka mm. after his ridiculous ridiculous penalty concession in the North London Derby. And, you know, I think we all get the idea that, you know, a manager is not going to absolutely trash a player in public. You know, it's counterproductive. I think we can all we can all see that, right? But at the same time, when you from a from a fan perspective, purely fan perspective, the manager is coming out and saying, well, look, every player can make a mistake. And Jacques is very important for us. He gives us great balance in midfield and, and all that kind of stuff. I do wonder if that sort of transmits itself to the squad in the sense that, well, look at what he did against Tottenham. And basically he's getting praised by the manager in public. I think there's a, a balance to be found between how you address you know, a player's failings and his positives in a public forum. And I realise it's difficult, but it's not the first time that that's uh, been a problem for Xhaka. Mm. And what, 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 is, what is the consequence for Xhaka for that horrible mistake? It's the captain's armband and the, uh, the support, very public support of, of his manager. So I... I I wonder if it just sort of fosters a culture of which doesn't really have any accountability. And therefore, the mistakes, and I'm not saying it's deliberate or anything like that. I think it's probably subconscious. You know, there's no way Socrates wanted to do what he did yesterday. And I think Socrates is a better footballer than that mistake illustrates. I think on the ball, he's been really pretty good for us. You know, the issues with his defending tend to be a bit more about his physicality and, and that kind of stuff. I Someone mean, has to tell him about VAR yeah. really soon, did really you, soon. Did you see the the replay where he's basically got yeah. hold of the guy's shirt? It's like, oh, come on. I know he's not alone. I know it happens all the time. But it's just like, come on. I know. I but, know. but you know, I, I it's about an overall culture within a club. And if players don't... It's hard, isn't it? Because you're de- you're dealing with a, a sort of it's a pop psychology kind of thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But I think it does stem a little bit from from the overall culture of the club, which is that well, mistakes happen. Every player can make a mistake, and if you make one, don't worry about it. That's kind of what it is. 
And I think that it feeds into it a little bit. In basic terms, I mean, if you make a mistake out on the football pitch, you should be thinking about what it will be like to walk into the dressing room after the game and be confronted with your teammates and have to take ownership and take responsibility for that. Um, And there are plenty of stories going around from eras of successful Arsenal teams where, you know, things like that weren't tolerated. Yeah. Um, And that, uh, you know, that's a very good point. It's It's a cultural one. And it's one, to be fair, that massively predates Emery, but this is largely a new group of players. Yeah. Uh, so that culture does definitely need to change. Yeah, I mean, there were people who, who spoke, weren't there before or around the time that Unai Emery was, was appointed manager that, you know, he's not necessarily great at author- authority. Mm. You know, where players kind of, uh, previous clubs have considered him not a soft touch, but, you know, they're not, there's no fear there. And I think there has to be, to a certain extent, a kind of either fear or respect, or both, ideally. And I'm not sure that's necessarily there with Emery. And, you know, the modern game and modern players are different and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But um, I think they like him. I have to say, everything I, everything I've heard, and I've heard some things, is that they like him. You know, they think he's a good guy. I, yeah. Whether or not they think he's comp- like competent is a different question, almost. Yeah, I think I think he seems to be a very nice man as well, mm. who works hard and wants to do well. That's why I think, but his effectiveness or his competence—it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it my question or is it your question? I think it's I your think it's question. My, I yeah. think it's mine. This is from Octo Guna, um, who says, and a few people have asked similar questions, do you think Callum Chambers would perform better compared to <laughs> Papa and Louise? <laughs> like, it's it's completely natural, isn't it, to say, well, look, yeah. you know, give Chambers a go because, you know, Socrates made a complete fuck-up and Louise has made... You know, a couple of complete fuck ups now. You know how long? How long are you going to tolerate? We at Newcastle. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. I can see why people would would uh, would go for that. I, uh, my worry is that it's, um, you know, he would eventually become exposed by the by the way the team is set up and by how badly organised we are, by how little protection the defence gets. You know we're all sitting here thinking about Hector and thinking about Kieran Tierney and thinking about Rob Holding and a sort of uh, a shining light comes down from the heavens and it's, you know, hallelujah, and these guys are in our team and all of a sudden we can defend again. I think that's a stretch. As much as I'm really looking forward to seeing these guys in our team and I do think, you know, they, they could make a difference, there are underlying issues which have to be sorted first and foremost. So, yeah, if we're talking about accountability and if we're talking about consequences, then one of Luis or Socrates should not play in our next Premier League game because they made mistakes. And if you make a mistake, there kind of has to be a consequence for it. And if that means you lose your place in the team and you've got to fight hard to win it back... That seems all right to me. So why not but give Chambers a go? do you think Callum Chambers would do better? Um, 
Because I, I'm not sure at what point do, yeah, that I mean, becomes sort of cutting off, you know, spite your face. I mean, God love Callum yeah. Chambers, but... Oh, do I'm I think convinced. Callum Chambers would struggle being asked to play the ball out from the back in the way that we were doing it yesterday mm. against teams better than Watford? Probably. But again, that's systematic more than individual, if you know what I mean. And Chambers has played in midfield for Fulham, so he can operate and he's, you know, um, in tight areas and he's, he's, he's a decent player, on the ball. Yeah. He's a tidy footballer, you know. Um, I, I think Chambers' issues are more about pace, recovery pace. You know, if, if someone gets in behind him and, and sometimes his... Um, Sometimes his physicality and his his positioning aren't always uh, where they are. So it's not so much about his footballing skills. I don't know. I don't know. Could he do worse? He probably could, but he might also do better. So, um, yeah, I I guess it depends what happens in Frankfurt because I expect him to play there. So, yeah. I mean, that, he'll get an opportunity there, I guess. We'll see how he does. I think, you know, it's natural when a guy makes a mistake or underperforms, you turn to the next person in line. Uh, I I'm, I think I'm more optimistic about the return of Rob, Rob Holding, maybe, than, than Callum Chambers. But mm. we shall see. They'll mm. both play, I would think, in the week. OK, here is a question from the Discord. It comes from... Uh, I know who it comes from, but I can't find it now. I think, it, yeah, it's from Gab, who says, simple question, why the hell would Aubameyang want to renew his contract? Mm, I had a question on a similar theme, just sort of, uh, was it on Twitter, I think, Simon1854, should we worry that no contract extensions have been announced for Aubameyang and Lacazette? Um, why would he want to renew his contract? Well, lots of reasons. I mean, financial reasons, in part. Uh, Go to China a- and get more. He can go to China and get more, um, <laughs> but he's got to go to China. And maybe, I mean, as brilliant as he is, maybe there aren't loads of other clubs who would pay him what we might pay him um, at this point in his career. But, yeah, I'm definitely worried about it. I mean, because he can choose to sit it out at this stage. He's got still got this season and next season to go. Yeah. So, yeah, he can run it down. And then the club are faced with a decision, well, pretty much as soon as the next transfer window in terms of are they going to look to cash in on a guy who they spent £60 million on and who does still have market value. Um, it's not something I'm sort of... It's not keeping me up at night, but mm. it's a, I'd say it's a, it's a problem, definitely. And I actually think Lacazette as well. You know, there was talk of him potentially going to Barcelona, then of him signing his extension. Neither's come to pass. But, you know, if we don't make the Champions League, those guys will be... Oh, they'll be looking to go, for sure. One of them will be going. Let's put it like that. Mm, And if one of them goes, the other one's unhappy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think think all of these things, when you, you talked about it in the first half of the show, where you... When we were talking about, you know, potentially the decision makers at the club thinking mm. about where we're going and what we're doing, I do feel like they've got a broader view of of all of it. And that's got to be a consideration. Mm. He's our best player, basically. Our our top goal scorer. He's keeping us 
um, somewhat effective. And his importance to the team has got to be a consideration for the people who are running the club. And if he feels unhappy or if he feels like he's at a club where, you know, he can snatch away at a couple of half chances during a game or his individual quality can can get him 20, 25 goals in a season, that's fine. I suspect he would rather be playing in a team which is, if not necessarily set up to, to play to his strengths, is a bit more rounded than the team we have at this moment in time. There was a stat flashed up on the screen yesterday, wasn't there? Um, maybe after his first goal, where they showed the last number of goals scored by scored by Arsenal. Yeah, I think it was like 16 of the last 19 were down to Aubameyang and Lacazette. Lacazette, yeah. You know, that's not that's not sustainable really. It's not healthy. You know, it's good to have an amazing striker but you've also got to be able to score goals from elsewhere. You also need other players who can score goals. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, at this moment in time, if a contract was in front of you and you were Obama Yang, would you be, would you be looking for clarity over the, the manager situation before you put pen to paper? You know? Maybe. I mean, I, I do think in these situations, sometimes we sort of overestimate footballers... Um, I don't want to say ambition, but, you know, there are so many factors that go into a guy wanting to be at a club. Uh, look at Meza Ozil, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, I th- I can see lots of reasons why Aubameyang might decide, I like being in London, I like being Arsenal's best player, I like that I'm in the team every week, I like that I'm in the Premier League, you know, the most marketed league in the world. I- I'm not at the point where I'm like, he would hate to play under Emery. It's not like he's not scoring goals or not getting in the team. Mm. Um, but uh, I I can't help but wonder if he'd like one last crack at the Champions League, that's for sure. Yeah, and he is 30 years of age now, so... Yeah, mm. the clock's ticking. And it has gone quiet. It has gone quiet, that contract extension story. Yeah, uh, which for is both of them. Never a good sign, given that they were... I mean, Aubameyang was at the point last summer, wasn't he, where it was sort of the, the two-year sign-or-be-sold ultimatum. Yeah. That was but wasn't there a story earlier this season about, you know, how uh, Lacazette and Aubameyang had, base, had signed new contracts or had agreed new contracts and it was a question of when they were going to announce it? Mm. I think, you know, the story maybe jumped the gun, but... Yeah, they definitely must have felt it was close, yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Food for thought. Um, what about this then? This is from LammyG81 on Twitter. Uh, and they say, as Emery is essentially a gazee disappointment, do you think Edu and co are itching to replace him with a new manager? Do you think there's any chance that, you know, because we've got this new executive team, they'll be like, they, they can't wait? to get their own band um, That's an interesting point because a number of Gazi disappointments have left the club yeah. in the last little while. You think of uh, Sven, obviously. Um, Darren Burgess, another one, who was out the door. So there was a power play moving away from the, the Gazidis thing. I'm kind of like you, you know, when it comes to, to Emery. I, I think... I don't think they will have any compunction in in appointing a new manager if they feel that Emery's 
underperformance becomes critical. Yeah. Where, who they might go for or what kind of a manager they might go for is is really interesting. You know, there's a... Lots a, of people have asked about that. Do, yeah. yeah. Do you have any feelings on that? Do I have any feelings about it? I don't quite know. Um, you know, I look at I look at this Arsenal team and I look at our chronic lack of organisation and defensive ability and I think of who's available in the market and Allegri springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you wonder again, are we, I mean, do we need, do we need to become a team that knows how to defend again before we can become the attacking team we all want to be? Do you think there's something in that? Maybe. What start from the, start from the back, basically from the foundations of the team. Yeah. Build a team that can defend. Maybe it won't be as exciting as we want it to be, but I guarantee you it will be a lot less frustrating than what we're seeing right now. Well, it's what, what Arsene Wenger actually always did in times of trouble. You know, you think back to, he would, um, what was that run we went on at the end of the season where he sort of brought in Mertesacker alongside Koscielny and yeah, we, set up a flat back four and, you know, we, we were much, much more compact and defensive in that run. And also when he first installed the back three, a similar kind of thing happened, you know, he went back to basics and protecting the goal first and foremost, even a manager who could be as cavalier as that. Mm. Um, so, I mean, in terms of who's available, Allegri seems the the obvious candidate if you're going to sort out your team from a defensive point of view. And then, I don't know. I mean, there's enough attacking talent in, in this team even with someone like Allegri, you know, when you've got Pepe, Lacazette, Aubameyang, Ozil, um, and the young players coming up behind, Ceballos, etc. Like, it wouldn't be necessarily the... If you're, if you're completely wedded to attacking football, maybe Allegri's not the guy. But if you want to see your team be solid and organised, and then you can move on from there, maybe as another stepping stone, that might make sense. Mm. Who are the other young managers out there that, you know, we could... I have to say, and uh, maybe this will be sort of scoffed at, I really, really, really like the Southampton manager. Hassan Hüttel. Yeah, he's really impressed me. Everything he's done since he's gone in Southampton. Um, and they are a super organised, super committed team who clearly love playing for their manager. And you can see it in every game. Um, so he would be on my list. And... Mikel Arteta would still be on my list, I must say. Um, he really would. You know. Did you see the quotes? He, he, uh, maybe not. He he said, I think he was asked, um, remember he was linked with the Newcastle job? Yeah, yeah. And he said something along the lines of, you know, about the idea of leaving Man City to take up a job on his own. He said, well, maybe once it wasn't quite my idea to not take the job. That was my reading of it. The other time, I think he basically said no to the Newcastle job. He made a decision. But the other one, which we assume was Arsenal, my reading of that was that he said, yeah, you know, wasn't necessarily my idea not to take the job. Yeah, that's... I'm just reading it now. And you see... Yeah. That that seems to be what he's saying. I mean, the thing about Arteta is he's on course to be the next Man City manager, I would say. Yeah. So... You know, 
persuade him to walk away from that <laughs> it might be quite difficult um we might have had our chance there mm. yeah yeah I, I guess um who else is out there i mean nagelsman is um is a really interesting young coach as well isn't he so yeah. but again you know it depends raul has all the contacts so i i don't think i don't think they'd be short of options mm. is but it? it would be a fascinating uh Mm. It'll be fascinating to see how different a process it was this time, I guess, with, with different people at the helm. Yeah. Maybe they get them to do, you know, some mime, do a couple of impressions, rather than the dossier thing. But anyway, mm. uh, is it my question? I think. Yeah. Yeah, okay. From Arsenal NZ, who's at Arsenal NZ1, he says, Are Arsenal fans doing Genduvi? Genduvi? Genduzi. Genduvi. Genduvi, groovy, groovy. Uh, are they doing Genduzi a disservice in overhyping him beyond his current ability level? Was his 2 1 hand signal after he had a stinker of a game a sign he's buying into his own hype? Look, Genduzi is. Um, when he's good, he's great. You know, and the things we love about his character are the same things that make him volatile and tricky. He was straight in, wasn't he, when that Pepe thing kicked off towards the end of the... Straight in. Straight in. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I actually think there are some technical problems with Gunduzi before we talk about his personality. You know, for the guy who has to take the ball off the defence every time, I think his first touch is a bit loose. I I really do. And. Mm. He, he, he traps the ball or, or brings it under control and I think he's partly trying to create distance between himself and his man but it just when you've got a press on you it's it's a real risk and he, he needs to improve in that regard and that's not new you know that's something we've been talking about for a good while now yeah um, I think in terms of his personality yeah he does buy into his own hype probably and from everything I've heard he does and that's partly what makes him able to walk into a club like Arsenal at 19 and and run the midfield. Yeah. Um, it's also what probably means that, you know, uh, he had disciplinary issues at his previous club. But, you know, that's sort of his nature, isn't it? And I think there are probably more positives than negatives with it. Yeah, I think it's about finding the balance. You know, that kind of spiky character and, and strength of personality is is a real positive. I think when you're coming off the pitch uh, against a team who are basically battering you, and you have a go at their fans by holding up two one. You know that's not that's not sensible. You know it's maybe the folly of youth or whatever. But someone I hope will have taken him to one side and and said, "Look, you know, give that fucking shit a rest," because uh, you know you, you've you've made yourself look like a bit of an Egypt, and you've made the club look like a bit of an Egypt. You see the Watford. Twitter account having a pop back and you of know of course and why not Fair why not play, oh absolutely know. and they should they should hopefully nobody got too offended you know cup of teas and all that kind of stuff but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it, it's yeah it's about the balance it's about the balance you know and a, a little bit more self-awareness um, but we'll see if he learns from it then good I don't think it's the worst thing in the world I mean what we're asking for is maturity and the guy's like 20 years old so you know some of that will come You'd think. You'd mm. have to think. Mm. Um, have you got any more questions to hand? Because I've sort of I've blasted through the ones I had lined up. I don't think so because most of them are kind of about stuff we've already talked about. Yeah, yeah. About you know Emery replacing Emery. Um, when are we going to replace Emery? 
yeah, yeah, just basically everything that we've already talked about from from uh, from the Watford game. So I don't know if we need to do any more. Is there anything else you can think of? Anything I think else? we've done enough, haven't we? We've done enough damage to everyone's happiness. And our own. And our and own. And our own. Yeah. Imagine, oh, man. <laughs> you dread it, don't you? I, 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 when it's that bad, I'm like, oh, God, I can't, you know, I, can't, I almost... But it's always cathartic. I almost can't face it, but it's always cathartic in the end. Yeah, I think so too. You know, you get up and you write about it and then you talk about it and it sort of gives you a bit of uh, a bit of clarity. So hopefully... It is interesting, I have to say. Sorry, just jumping in. You know, in my role with The Athletic, we talk about what we're going to write and we sort of have to plan quite far ahead. And everything I had lined up for this week was about, you know, Europa League and stuff like that. And to a certain extent, when something like yesterday happens, it just goes out the window because the focus is so clearly on the manager. And suddenly all the narrative around the club, around the fixtures, it's kind of channeled through him. And mm. it's a big week for him now suddenly. You know, he's, he's got our toughest game of the Europa League group stage, whatever you might think of that competition. And then he's got a home match against Aston Villa, which I'd say not only does he need to win, I think he probably needs to win it quite convincingly um, to win back some of the... Support he will have lost at Vicarage Road. Yeah. Anything less than a win against Villa on Sunday is going to go down like a fucking fart in a spacesuit, isn't it? You know, it's... Yeah. yeah, it is a big week for him and there's a lot of pressure on him. And the pressure, you know, after a, a relatively relaxed and upbeat summer, you know, is now huge. It's, it's huge pressure. Yeah. And that's, that's the reality it. of modern football. And I think this is... It might it might seem a little bit strange for people because we we were used to a manager being in situ for for as long as Fenger was, but this is the reality of top flight football. You know, from where we were, sometimes you look at a club and you go, "Oh my God, they're not giving that manager very much time." But the people who are running the club decided, "Okay, this is not the direction we want to go in with this particular manager." Bang, out you go. Mm. That's what that's what we are now. Mm. That's the kind of club that we are. That we're going to have to operate in much the same way as every other club. And, and I have to say, sort of purely subjectively, I don't love that. Like it, it, I, it doesn't bring me much sort of joy at all. Um, but you're right; it is the reality. And I think everyone at Arsenal understands that. And I think Unai Emery understands that. Almost better than most, and I mm. think when you when you analyse, I mean, a he's been that sort of manager all through his career, but when you analyse what he's done at Arsenal, I think there is a a little bit of desperation there. A li- there's a little bit of a man whose principal uh, drive is to keep his job, and mm. yeah, but it's not it's not really working for him right now. No. All right, well, look, we'll see how Thursday goes. Um, that is the Europa League game against uh, Eintracht Frankfurt. Of course, we will... What do, What time is that game? Oh, I don't know, 1am or 11 <laughs> in the morning, something stupid. 11 in the morning um, last Wednesday. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those... I think it's 5.55. There you go, all the five. 5.55. Okay, well, we'll have a... An arse cast on Friday looking back at the uh, the Frankfurt game and looking ahead to the game against Villa next weekend. Um, yeah, look, we'll leave it there for now. Hopefully um, you've enjoyed the show. We've tried to um, provide as much 
clarity or understanding of what's gone on as as we possibly can. But this is a discussion I think that people will be having throughout the week on uh, social media and other podcasts. Um, as ever, thanks a million for listening. Do give us a review on iTunes if you like. We, we'd appreciate that. And we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.